It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts. Each week at this time, the H.J. Hines Company, makers of the famous 57 varieties, gives you information, please. A quartet of experts is on hand to answer your questions. Send them to information, please, at 570 Lexington Avenue, New York City. We may edit them a bit, and in case of similarity, you'll have to accept our judgment of who shall be paid. If we use your question, the H.J. Hines Company will send you $10 in war stamps, plus a set of the 12-volume Britannica Junior Encyclopedia. If we muff the question, you get $57 in war bonds and stamps, plus a 24-volume set of the regular Encyclopedia Britannica. All questions remain our property. Information, please, is presented under the supervision of Dan Golenpaul. And now, our Master of Ceremonies, book reviewer of the New Yorker magazine, Clifton Fadiman. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Ladies and gentlemen, perennially impromptu, information, please, tonight offers its brace of regulars, John Kieran of the New York Sun and Franklin P. Adams of Western Connecticut. Together with two tycoons of the sporting world, Mr. Ford Frick, President of the National League, and the Dean of Sports Columnists, Mr. Grantland Rice. And before we begin, Mr. Frick, do you mind if I ask you how you think the season shapes up? I mean, for the National League, of course. I could answer that better if it stops raining, Mr. Fadden. <laughs> <laughs> right now, it looks like no game rain. Do you think the season is going to be called on account of rain? It looks that way. Doesn't it? Much. Moment. Now, uh, another announcement that we would like to make is one that gives us great pleasure. For the first time, under the sponsorship of the H.J. Hines Company, information, please, beginning tonight, is being broadcast to our armed forces in North Africa and the British Isles. And we're going to begin with a question from Harold Sharp of North Hollywood, California. And this is about sports figures, very durable ones. Uh, which one played 17 years in the outfield for one team? Mr. Frick. That was Mel Ott of Mel the Giants. Right. There have been some others who played more than 17 years for with team? one team. With one team? With one team. Ty uh, Cobb played much more than 17, but didn't finish with the team he started. And Zach Wheat played more than 17 years with Brooklyn, but finally wound up with Philadelphia. Uh -huh. Is that right, Mr. Kieran? Uh, I wouldn't contradict them. You've got to help me out tonight. <laughs> All right. What, uh, what sports figure pitched 22 years for one team? Pitched 22 years, Mr. Kieran. Walter Johnson. Walter Johnson. Of the, uh, of the Washington Senators. Senators. Right. And what one managed, managed a team for 42 years? This doesn't seem possible. 42 years, Mr. Rice. Connie Mack. 
Connie Mack, yes. Never got tired of it, did he, Mr. Rice? No, he looks just the same as he did when I knew him 42 years ago. But it's not true of the athletics, though, is it? No, they don't look quite as good. Uh, that gives us three out of three. How about this one from Matthew Edwards of Brooklyn, New York? This is a, a very timely question that Mr. Edwards asks you. Quote a line of poetry or prose which contains these words. One of them containing the word by, the second containing the word war, the third stamps, and the fourth bonds. By, war, stamps, and bonds, Mr. Kieran. I sometimes it. wonder what the vintners buy, one half as precious as the stuff they sell from Omar. That's a very apposite one, Mr. Kieran. Uh, another one? A... You mean four? No, now let's have one now. with the word war in it. We've got our buy. Uh, Mr. Adams? Uh, Lars Porsena of Clusium, by the nine gods he swore, and that rhymes with war in the next uh, line. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. No, that no, has, no, Mr. No. Kieran does it? No, that is the, the next is no more. That's the rhyme there. That's but I, I, You mean there's there's war, war in that... In that poem. There is a war in the poem, yes, but we the can't go through the whole poem. The proud house of should suffer Some wrong no more. more. I'll give you one with war right, in it. Uh, the the uh, mustering squadron and the clattering car, uh, swiftly forming in the ranks of war, went pouring forth with impetuous speed. Byron's, uh, you know... I don't know. Revelry, and there was sound of revelry yes. by night. Very good, and that's a tough one, Mr. Kieran. Uh, Mr. Frick, did you have something on your mind? Well, I was merely going to say that there was no war in the quotation Mr. Adams gave in those lines. You've, you've been all through that poem I in your head? I've been through that poem. There's war in There's somewhere. war later, but not in the, <laughs> not the start. Well, now we've got by and war. Now we have to get stamps and bonds. Uh, stamp or stamps. It can be either singular or plural. Mr. Kieran. The rank is but the guinea stamp, demands the gout for either. That's a darn good one, yes. That's a very good one. It's from uh, whom? Robert Burns, a man's a man for either. Right. Now we have uh, by war stamps and finally bonds, gentlemen. Any line with the word bond or bonds in it? Uh, Mr. Kieran going to do this all himself? Any bonds today. <laughs> very good. I'd like to remind our listeners, as uh, well as our experts, that next week when we'll be broadcasting from Cleveland at a bond rally, we'll be saying it with a real thing and uh, not with words. How about this one from Mrs. Ruth Goldman of Denver, Colorado? Under what circumstances, gentlemen, did these people take opposite sides? And the first set, Washington and General Charles Lee. They disagreed at one point, Mr. Kern. They disagreed very heartily at the Battle of Monmouth down in New Jersey. Part? Late in the Revolution, General Lee was in command, and he was ordered to attack. He refused to attack. He dilly-dallied, in fact, began to withdraw. And General Greene uh, uh, objected to that and wasn't get, getting anywhere until General Washington happened to come up, and he uh, ordered Lee uh, off the field and practically into arrest. You've been reading that Times History quiz, Mr. <laughs> Kieran. That's very good, and that's a perfect answer. Uh, how did Lee end up, Mr. Kieran? Remember? Well, at one time, he went over to the British... Yeah, he ended in disgrace. Uh, was he a sort of semi-traitor? I don't know whether... He, was a, he wasn't a, he was a pro. He wasn't an amateur soldier. He was a pro. I mean, he sold himself anywhere he could get uh -huh. a good uh, offer. Yeah. How about uh, Carl Hubble and Ty Cobb? At what, when were they on opposite sides of the fence, disagreed about something? Carl Hubble and Ty Cobb. Mr. Frick. Well, I think that was when Hubble was originally a member of the Detroit club, and Hubble thought he was a pretty good pitcher, and Mr. Cobb thought he wasn't. Hubble wanted to develop his screwball, and Cobb decided it was not a good pitch. 
and turned him loose. And he later went with the Giants. Yes. That was one of Mr. Cobb's mistakes, wasn't it? That was one of Mr. Cobb's mistakes. Mr. Wright? I just saw Carl Hubble this afternoon, and he told me that he'd wake on the screwball for three years until Cobb told him he couldn't use it, and so he forgot it for three years, but he picked it up after he left the Tigers. Uh-huh. Uh, that gives us the whole story. How about uh, Brian and Wilson? At what point, under what circumstances, were they on opposite sides of the fence? Mr. Frick. Well, that was when uh, Brian was Secretary of State under Mr. Wilson. Yes. And uh, finally resigned because of an argument he had with Mr. Wilson over war policies, as I recall it. That's quite right. What particular war policy? Does it come back to you, gentlemen? They disagreed on a specific matter. Uh, member, a Mr. Adams. I think it was at the, uh, probably at the declaration of war, and uh, I think Mr. Brian was not for war at any price. Well, before that, Mr. Adams disagreed I, over I think Mr. it was Kieran? a policy with regard to the submarine warfare that came up. Well, particularly how? Uh, well, uh, Wilson wanted to take uh, punitive measures against it or, or drastic protective measures yes. against it, and Brian thought it was leading into war. Yes, but Brian <laughs> thought that uh, American citizens uh, oh, didn't ships. have any right to travel right. on belligerent no, merchant ships, and if they were sunk, it was just, just too bad. Well, that gives us three out of three. Here's one from John J. Tierney of New York City. It's a musical question, gentlemen, and I may as well tell you that Mr. Levant is... Mr. Levant not being here tonight is a very easy one. You're going to hear a group of songs that are going to be played one right after the other with not much intermission. And they should suggest to you a series of outstanding sports events. Is that clear? Perhaps it'll become clear as you listen to the song. Just tell us what the sports events are. All right, go ahead. tell us a more or less complete story. Mr. Adams, I'd like to start with you. Well, one of them was the Army-Navy game. Uh, Football. Now, let's see. Now, uh... No, no. This should tell a complete story. Oh. Uh, Mr. The whole thing? Yeah, the whole uh, thing. I believe on January 1st, 1934, I might be a year out on the year date, but no, that was the time Columbia beat Stanford in the Rose Bowl, 7 to nothing, yes. with KF-79 play. That I remember very well, Mr. Kieran, yeah. Uh, how did you know that from the music that was played, Mr. Well, Kieran? because it was California, Here I Come, That's then right. they played Roar, Lions, Roar, That's and correct. it was a, it was a great song. time for the lions to roar. Very good. Now, that, that, how about the other? There were two other songs. We've identified California, Here I Come, which means an invitation to the Rose Bowl. The Roar, Lion, Roar meant the defeat of Stanford by Columbia in 1934, as Mr. Kieran reminds us. And the last one was Anchors Away. Yes, what would that mean to you, Mr. Adams? That would be the Navy. The Navy doing what? What was the Navy doing? What was that other song? Why, we've what forgotten it by one? this time. Yeah. It was Michigan, wasn't it? Uh, no. Oh, it sounded like Harvard to me. It was. Thank heaven. If there are any Harvard people... Na well, I mean, I thought I know it very well, but I've forgotten whether... Well, that what would that one mean? Harvard? Harvard and Navy? No. Harvard and... Well, uh, Harvard first and then the Navy. You've got to, It's clear that the California Here I Come means that all these games were played at the Rose Bowl. Harvard and Navy played Harvard, in the Rose Bowl? Harvard, Harvard played Oregon in the Rose Bowl. Mr. Rice, that's quite right. And uh, what was the outcome of the game? Uh, Harvard won 7-6. to six. Right, that's exactly right. And the last one, anchors away, would mean what? 
Navy never played, played in the Rose Bowl. Didn't it? Not that, that I know. In no. uh, 1924, tied with Washington, 1414. Navy? Am I wrong? Mr. Rice? Got you me. might be right. But I, I think that's right. Well, I guess we got... That was kind of ragged, that answer. That ought to send a $57 in war bonds and stamps. Cheney and a set of the Britannica. How about this one? This is from John S. Sumner of Manhasset, New York. What famous event or personality is associated with these trees? I'm going to name three trees. Tell me what comes to your mind when I name each one. The first is an oak tree, famous oak tree. Mr. Frick. That's Charter Oak. Oh, tell us about that. Charter Oak in Connecticut, where the charter was hidden. Connecticut's a big state, boy. (laughs) Hartford, how's that? Uh, That's better. We like to remember Hartford. I'll make it Hartford. We're very fond of Hartford on this program. Uh, And what is the story about that? famous charter oak, Mr. Frey? Well, the, uh, the charter of Connecticut was uh, hidden in the oak for some time. Yes, that's right, when uh, Governor Andrus and the Colonial Times demanded it surrender. Now, the next tree is a bow tree, spelled B-O. Bow tree. Anything uh, come to you, Mr. Kieran? No, it has something to do with a, either a fairy tale or a musical comedy, I think. With a Kipling poem of some sort. Uh, you, tree you, in it. You'd be right, Mr. Frick. Uh, it would be in Kipling because it is about India. The bow tree is the Indian name for the fig tree under which uh, Buddhists believe that Gautama Buddha received his divine powers. I guess we ought to call that one wrong. Mr. Frick, you're on the right track. How about uh, this apple tree? Is there a famous apple tree that uh, recalls anything, Mr. Adams? That you don't sit under with anybody but me. <laughs> That's one, Mr. Adams. Uh, just as famous, Mr. Rice. Well, golf uh, was really born in this country under the apple tree at St. Andrews. Now, that apple I didn't know at all. Six uh, men started it, in 1891. That gives us two John. famous apple trees. Mr. Uh, there's an apple tree Sir, uh, of... Uh, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, yes. Mr. Kieran was about to tell us. Mr. Adams, you have still another... And there's another one about uh, uh, when asked what state he hails from, uh, our answer, it will be, he comes from Appomattox and its famous apple tree. Yes, that was uh, that was a famous line in connection with some uh, uh, presidential uh, race, I think, wasn't it, Mr. Kieran? Or I Mr. don't Frick? know. Yes. I'm not sure. I don't know. Now, here's a question I shall put to our Heinz reporter. You're asked to identify the author of the following quotation. Sir, respect your dinner. Idealize it. Enjoy it properly. How about it, Mr. Grower? Well, you'll find that observation in William Makepeace Thackeray's Memorials of Gourmandizing. And it's mighty fine advice. For these days, a good dinner really deserves respect. As every housewife knows, it's an achievement that takes foresight, planning, and good cooking. Even before you buy the food, you have to sit down and plan the meal. You have to think of nutrition and ration points, as well as flavor. But when you start cooking, that's when the real test comes. That's when you need your own private brand of magic to transform a pound of chopped meat or stew or a few eggs into something you'll be proud of. And that's where some of our Heinz 57 varieties can lend you their magic. For our Heinz pickles, condiments, and ready soups can help make a simple wartime dinner worthy of respect. Help you, as Mr. Thackeray puts it, to idealize it, enjoy it properly. Thank you, Mr. Grau. We'll go on with a question from G.P. Twaddle of Middletown, New York. Name the person whose favorite greeting is or was, and I'm going to give you some greetings. The first is, Hello, Kid. 
course, this might be any member of the AEF in London. Uh, Mr. Frick? That sounds like Babe Ruth. I guess it was, yes. A famous greeting of Babe Ruth. Now, here, the next one is, Hiya, Jackson. Hiya, Jackson. Mr. Rice? That's the on the Benny program. It is indeed, yes. Uh, and who, Dennis who says Day. It? Uh, well, Dennis Day, I think. I think it's Phil Harris who, who, oh, uh, who greets Mr. Benny with Hiya, Jackson. And here's the third and last. Howdy, folks. Mr. Curran. Oh, well, Rogers used to yes, say that. Yes, he used to, yes. And uh, someone, uh, Mr. Frick? Yes, that has a familiar ring. Mr. Doesn't Frank. it? Uh, wasn't it one of your favorite greetings? Yes. Uh, uh, when you were a sports time. announcer? That's right. <laughs> right. That gives us three out of three. <laughs> Whatever induced you to go downstairs and become the president of the National League, Mr. Frick? <laughs> Well, I'm getting old. I don't like to go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> How about this one from Marjorie Sherwood of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma? Uh, this, uh, I'm going to ask you to recite a line of poetry that includes certain phrases, all of which have to do with, with cattle. This is Meatful Monday. The first is lowing herd. Lowing herd, Mr. Rice. Lowing herds wind slowly all the leaves. Quite right, Mr. Rice. And what's Mr. From? Gray of allergy. Quite right. Now we have lowing herd. How about... Driven cattle, a line of poetry, Mr. Adams. Be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Perfect, Mr. Adams, and what's it from? That's from the Psalm of Life. Yes, by? H.W. Longfellow. Very good. And the last is cows and chickens, a line of verse which has the phrase cows and chickens in it. Uh, Mr. I Adams? I think that's a song. Go ahead. Uh, might be the one about Michigan, is it? Don't think so. Oh, how I wish again I were in Michigan no. down on the farm. I don't think there are any cows and chickens, Mr. Frick. Well, that's it. Uh, life among the cows and chickens. How are you going to keep them down on the farm? And that sounds right, yes. Is that the same one as I love the cows and chickens, but this is the this life? Is this, the is li the life. Well, this is a life. No, that's a different That's one. a different, that's a different life. But I, I think either of those answers is correct. All right. Here's one from Georgie Sweetser of New York City. Identify the players who made these remarkable records in a single inning. Uh, the first... Caught three foul flies in a single inning. Who was that? Caught three foul flies in a single inning. I guess it happened only once. Uh, have, have three sports expert, and Mr. Adams, who's a sort of a half expert. Uh, Mr. Rice, doesn't come I back to you. I don't remember that at Mickey all. Mickey Owen, Brooklyn, 1941. Better known for having dropped the prospective third strike. <laughs> <laughs> guess we'll call that one wrong. Uh, who hit two home runs in a single inning? That's easier. Hit, who hit two home runs in a single inning? guess there are quite a few answers to that. Two home runs in a single inning. I wish I knew one of them. Uh, well, there are five answers, at least five answers that I have information about. Hartnett. Pardon? Is Hartnett one of them? No. Keep Didn't going. Benny Kauf. Who? Benny Kauf. No. Well, we get most of the players if we keep on this way. Hack Wilson, Hank Lieber, Ken Williams, Bill Regan, and Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio, only 1936, uh, hit two home runs in a single inning. This is a great sports evening we're having, folks. <laughs> who, uh, who struck out four men in a single e uh, inning? Struck out four men in a single inning. Seems there are three possible answers to this. Uh, I Mr. think Kieran? there was a, a Detroit pitcher. Was don't it, uh, think so. Well, maybe. I, I, wild, wild Bill Donovan? Did he have No, I don't have information on that. Now, that may be true, Mr. Kieran. The, the information I have mentions Hook Wiltsey of the Giants, Walter Johnson, and a long time ago, that was 1911, 
Guy Morton a long time ago, 1916. Well, we have three strikeouts on that. That sends at least $57 in war bonds and stamps to Mr. Sweetser and a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, courtesy of the H.J. Hines Company. How about this one for Mrs. Edgar Yeomans of Los Angeles? What military campaign or battle is described in these books? The first book is Rabble in Arms, about what war or what battle uh, is that, in part at least. Uh, Mr. Frick. Uh, that is the uh, Arnold campaign to Canada. Yes, and that's uh, in what war? Well, that, that was the... Uh, I mean, it was... Uh, what, what, what war was That was the Revolutionary yes, War. Yes, the American Revolutionary War. Who, who wrote the novel, Mr. Frick? Uh, Kenneth Roberts. Kenneth Roberts, yes. Very good novel by Kenneth Roberts. And how about the novel Vanity Fair has a description of a battle in it. Vanity Fair, Mr. Kieran. That was the description of the Battle of Waterloo, one of the... Well, a Napoleonic uh, downfall. Quite right. Mr. Adams, you're going to answer the same thing I'm... Same thing, positive. I just read it. How is it, by the way? It's very good. I'm now reading the Newcombs. Say, Thackeray will be glad to hear that, Mr. <laughs> How about the novel This Above All? That's a more recent one, and it contains an account of what battle? A bestseller of about two years ago, Mr. Frick. That was Dunkirk, wasn't it? Yes, Dunkirk is quite right. And who wrote the book, Mr. Frick? Ed, uh, I do not remember. Uh, I yes, should. Eric uh, Knight. Eric Knight. A uh, very right. fine writer unfortunately died in the pursuit of his military duties just uh, about a year ago. That gives us three out of three. Mr. Frick, you seem to pay more attention to books than you do to sports. How about uh, this one from Reuben Goldwasser of Staten Island? What innovations in sports or games were introduced by the following people? The first is Todd Sloan. What innovation? Todd Sloan, Mr. Frick. Well, that was a method of riding and horse racing. He yes. was the first one to use the monkey seat, so-called. What is that exactly? Well, it's riding up on the shoulders of the horse, crouched. Yes. But how long ago was that uh, introduced? Mr. Kieran? I don't know. I think it's in the, uh, around the 1890, something like that, That's perhaps right. a little before. No, 1897. Was it? 1897. Yes, sitting very well, he... high up on the horse. Mr. Frick, what's the advantage of that, especially, would you say? Well, we, uh, it's, it's easier for the horse. You're up on the horse's shoulders, and you're crouched where there's uh, less resistance to the wind. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can follow the movement of the horse better. That seems reasonable. Now, what did Harold Vanderbilt do? What innovation did he introduce in what sport? Mr. Rice. Bridge, uh, the Vanderbilt uh, bed. Yes, and what is that? Well, that's a demanding bed. Uh, let's see, I don't know what that is. Do, do you play bridge? I don't. Anything you say I is okay with lately. me. But the, the Vanderbilt was, I think, the club. That's right. A, a bit of one club, club to show three quick tricks. What does that mean? I have no idea. That's what it says well, that here. It means that you've either got uh, three aces or an ace and a king-king and a king-king. That sounds right. And he, he added the, the uh, vulnerability feature and slam bonuses. Mr. Kieran, do you know what that is? I know what they mean, but I didn't know that he did That's all that. apparently a, a great innovator, Mr. Harold Vanderbilt. And how about Charles Comiskey? What uh, innovation did he introduce? Have two hands. Mr. Frick. Charles Comiskey was the first first baseman to play off the bag. Yes. About when did he introduce Who that? was this man? On the 1880s. Charles Comiskey. Comiskey. Uh, Comiskey. Oh, do you say Comiskey? I say Comiskey, and so does Comiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adams, from now on, I say Comiskey, too. Which is right? Comiskey is right. Comiskey is right? Comiskey is right. Comiskey is but why right. do they tell me Comiskey? 
Because they don't know, that's why. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so wh where did you get this idea of playing off the bag, Mr. Frick? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, I think. But any, do you happen to know how we... Uh, no, of except that, that uh, up until time he did, that old first baseman stayed very go right close, close to, to the, the bag, bag, and a lot of balls were going past, yeah. hitting over towards second base, and they couldn't get to them. So yeah. he moved over. He was fast and could get back. He started to play off the bag. Oh, well, the story goes that the, he saw a couple of kids, some kids playing on a sandlot, and he noticed they used to play off the bag at first base. Well, that's entirely possibly true. Uh, I didn't figure know. out that was a good idea. That gives us three out of three. Here's one. Well, let's see. Let's hold up a minute. Our 57 Varieties reporter... Ben Grower is back with a little inside story on Heinz. Over the years, we've had a lot of visitors tour Heinz kitchens. And it's been mighty gratifying to have the women exclaim over such things as the air-conditioned rooms where we dry spaghetti. To hear them, oh, and ah with delight at the tempting aromas arising from our soup kettles. The perfect vegetables that go into our baby foods. They usually have a head full of questions to ask, too. A rather common one is, how do you keep Heinz tomato ketchup always the same, always uniform? Well, part of the credit goes to those Heinz aristocrat tomatoes, pedigreed beauties we harvest at their sun-ripened prime. Rare, heady spices have a lot to do with it, too. And, of course, we cook our ketchup with homespun care to a farm recipe generations old. And as a final color check, we even use an ingenious device in which ketchup samples are matched against definite color standards. That's why every Keystone-labeled bottle of ketchup you buy has that same uniform flavor and quality that mark it unmistakably Heinz. Thank you, Mr. Grower. Let's go on with this from Chester E. Floyd of Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, all of these lines that I'm going to quote in part contain phrases dealing with fear. The first is, I have not winced. I have not winced, Mr. Rice. Nor cried aloud. Good enough. Give us another line or two, can you? Under the, beneath the bludgeonings of That's chance, right. my head is bloody, but unbowed. Perfect, Mr. Rice. And what's it from? That's from, uh, oh... You've got it. I know it well. Uh, Invictus. Invictus. Invictus, Invictus, yes. yes. Uh, Henley's Invictus. Invictus. Now, here's another one. I, a stranger and afraid. I, a stranger and afraid. Comes from what line by what poet? Mr. Adams, is that your hand tentatively going up? No, don't And definitely know. going down? Uh, Mr. Kieran? No, sir. I'll just go after that. Oh, well, that's, that's the answer to the question. I'll give it to you. I, a stranger and afraid in a world I never made. Who wrote it now, Mr. Adams? James T. Farrell. Well, he quoted it. Uh, he quoted it uh, as part of, as the title of one of his books. But it comes from A.E. Hausman, the author of A Shropshire Lad. That's one wrong. How about feared a dying, feared a dying? Mr. Rice. The old man rubber. Old Man River, can you give us a line? Scared from of living, but afraid of dying. Uh, yeah, that's right. Old Man River, he just keeps rolling along. That's two out of three. Try this one for Mrs. G.H. Nicholas of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Famous men often consult experts for advice or help when they're engaged in a particular job. <coughs> whom did these consult? Coleridge consulted whom in writing The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Whom did he consult? Was advice, Mr. Adams? You may have uh, uh, consulted Mr. Frick. Now, why should he have done that? Not well, that because idea. the ancient mariner uh, batted 333. Which ancient mariner is that? The regular ancient mariner. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. <laughs> <laughs> I almost 
almost ought to let that one go by, Mr. Adams. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Kieran? Was that a fellow poet that he yes, consulted? Yes, it was. Wordsworth. I... Wordsworth is right. It's probably Mr. Kieran was about to say, yes. Still, I was awfully glad to get that out of you, Mr. Adams. Yes, he did consult William Wordsworth before he wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and during its composition. Gary Cooper appeared in a movie called The Pride of the Yankees, but whom did he have to consult before he could appear in it? Paul Gallico. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's true, Mr. Adams, but uh, there's someone else. Mr. Uh, Rice? Mrs. Gary, I think. She had part of the decision in that. Yes, but he, he uh, learned a particular thing, Mr. Frick, Lefty from someone. Duel. What did Lefty O'Doul teach him? Lefty O'Doul uh, taught him uh, to throw his left hand and to uh, hit left-handed. Worked with him on his, on his batting style and his throwing style. That's right, because uh, Gary Cooper was, was a natural right-hander. That's quite right. How about President Monroe, when he formulated his famous doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine, consulted whom for advice or help? Now, we have two out of three so far. We're safe, Mr. Kerry. Well, I think he should have consulted Thomas Jefferson if he didn't. He did. Uh, I haven't knew it, but I, I figured a smart fellow would. <laughs> That's right. Thomas Jefferson is right. He consulted Madison, too. But as a matter of fact, the person who helped him most, as I understand it, in the formulation of the famous doctrine, was his Secretary of State at that time. And who was that? Secretary of State under Adams. Monroe. Helbridge Gary, wasn't it? Uh, Adams, what did you say? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams. No relative, I presume? No relative, I presume. Uh, yes, that's right. That gives us three out of three, and that's all we'll have time for. Thank you, Mr. Frick, and thank you, Mr. Rice, for batting them out tonight. Now, this evening, the H.J. Hines Company has paid out $114 in war bonds and stamps, and that means the two sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica go along with the bonds and stamps. Next week, at the same time, we'll broadcast from the Cleveland Auditorium in Cleveland, Ohio. And that, as some of you may remember, will be the fourth stop in Information Police's bond-selling tour. We'll be interested to see whether the great city of Cleveland can do as well as the great little city of Hartford, Connecticut. Our regulars, John Kieran, Franklin P. Adams, and Oscar Bavant, will be on hand. And our special guest will be our old friend, the distinguished citizen, Mr. Leon Henderson. Remember, send your questions and the correct answers to Information Please at 570 Lexington Avenue, New York City. And now, Ben Grauer, our Heinz reporter. H.J. Heinz Company wishes you good health and good evening. We hope you'll be with us again next Monday, and in the meantime, remember that the name H.J. Heinz will bring you the best possible value for your precious blue stamps, and that the Keystone label on the famous 57 varieties is your guarantee of full-flavored, tempting foods. <laughs>